0: All right, good morning, God bless you guys, we're going to get started here, so come on in and take a seat, Pastor Carey said that I could just kick things off myself since I've been here before and most of you know me, how many of you uh, would consider this the first time you've come out and heard me speak live, okay, several of you, Um, how many of you won't raise your hand this morning no matter what I ask? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, He shared that joke last time he was here. But um, (laughs) hey, great to see all of you again. Thanks for carving out some time on a Saturday morning to uh, come down to church and crack open God's word with me. It's going to be a blessed time, I believe. Um, If you're unfamiliar with who I am, my name is Charlie Campbell. I live in San Diego, California uh, with my wife and five kids and uh, I am a Christian apologist. That is not to say that I go around the country apologizing for my Christian faith. Uh, The word apologia in the Bible means defense. As Christians, we're to give a defense, and that's where we get that word apologetic. So I am an apologist, and that means I uh, have a heart to defend the faith. We're told to contend earnestly For the faith. The faith is under fire today, of course, from just about every conceivable direction. And my heart is to uh, not only defend the faith to skeptics and atheists, but to help equip Christians like you uh, to be better prepared to contend for the faith and answer skeptics' questions in your own conversations with your non-believing family members and friends and co-workers and such. So we're going to do a bit of that here today and then again tomorrow morning if you're able to join us. Uh, If you brought a Bible, uh, thank you for doing that. I'd like to kick things off by looking at a verse in the book of Jude. Why don't you turn there with me if you would. We'll look at a verse there and then I'll open us up in prayer and we'll dive in. The book of Jude is the second to last book in the Bible, so just find the book of Revelation and back up a couple of pages. I appreciate your pastor's invitation to come back and share with you. It's always a blessing to see you guys. Uh, 2021 was our last time together, so it's been a couple of years. All right, book of Jude. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 3 if you don't have a Bible Uh, We'll get it up on the screen for you. Notice what Jude writes. He says, beloved. He's reminding us that we're beloved by our creator. He says, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing to gather together on a Saturday morning and open up your word together and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And God, as we consider what Jude says here, and it's bearing on our faith and our interaction with non-Christians and the reliability of the Bible, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds here today. God, we pray for every believer here that they would leave encouraged and built up in the faith and better equipped to answer questions and objections that atheists and skeptics have regarding the trustworthiness of the Bible. And Lord, if there would be one among us today, perhaps, who doesn't yet know you in a personal, saving way, God, we ask for their salvation today, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever talked to a non-Christian friend or maybe a family member about God or the Bible only to have your words blown out of the sky with an objection like, there isn't any good evidence God exists? Or maybe they said religions, including Christianity, are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering and atrocities. Or they say the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide. How could you believe in a God that would do that? Or they say the Bible condones slavery, it oppresses women, it promotes hatred of homosexuals. Many critics of Christianity today have an arsenal of these kinds of conversation halting objections ready to unload. At the first inkling, someone's about to talk to them about religion or the Bible or Jesus. Have you heard some of these? If you've tried to share the gospel with people in the 21st century, I'm sure that you have. Question for you. When these kinds of objections come up, do you feel that you're well prepared in those moments to contend earnestly for the faith? What does Jude mean here when he tells us to contend for the faith? Well, let's break it down. The word contend in Greek literally means to fight. The word earnestly means seriously or intensely. And that phrase, the faith, refers to the whole body of revealed truth contained in the Bible. So Jude, writing here under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, instructs Christians to put up a fight for the truth of God's word. Now, don't misunderstand, Jude. He's not encouraging us to get into physical fights with people. No, (laughs) don't do that. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, to live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, he said, live peaceably with all. We're not to be getting into fistfights with people over theological disagreements. No, when Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith, he's talking primarily about countering the errors, the misconceptions and false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth. So contending earnestly for the faith is really just speaking the truth. Answering people's questions about God. Answering their objections to Jesus. Responding to their criticisms about the Bible. But that's not always easy to do, is it? It often takes preparation and study ahead of time. So that when those moments come up, you actually are ready to say something intelligent and biblical Well, to help us all be a little bit better prepared to contend earnestly for the faith and defend the trustworthiness of the Bible, in our first session here today, I'd like to respond to several of these popular objections and criticisms that atheists and skeptics are bringing up with just some concise answers with the hope that it will encourage you and strengthen your faith, but also leave you better equipped to talk to people in future conversations the first objection i'd like to address concerns the topic of slavery in the bible it's not uncommon to hear atheists say that the bible condones slavery and that only evil selfish men would ever concoct a book like that well how might we respond to that Well, when someone brings this up with me, I like to point out to them that slavery was never part of God's original plan for humanity. And it wouldn't exist if it weren't for mankind's sin. The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, in the Old and New Testaments. We're also instructed in the Bible to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Slavery wouldn't exist anywhere if people loved one another that way. A loving person doesn't kidnap people, lock them up and force them to work without pay. That's terribly cruel. And the men who penned the Bible knew that. Kidnapping humans is a sin that carried the death penalty in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 21 verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There would probably be a lot fewer abductions today. If kidnappers were swiftly tried and when found guilty, put to death. But of course, we've done away with the death penalty in several states. And now society's paying the price. The slave trade is alive and well right now in our country, as I'm sure many of you know. Because these people get a slap on the wrist or a year or two in jail rather than the death penalty. Another verse that made it clear, kidnapping people. And forcing them to be slaves is wrong can be found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. Notice that if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a what? Slave. Or sells him, the kidnapper must die. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. So the Old Testament made it clear that these activities were wrong. But what about the New Testament then? Does it take a softer stand on the topic of slavery? No, in the New Testament, enslavers, men stealers, or slave traders, depending on your translation, are condemned alongside murderers in first Timothy chapter one, verses eight through ten. So then that leaves us with the question, why then do some people believe that the Bible endorses slavery? Well, I think it's because the Bible does have a handful of verses where God instructed the Israelites on how they were to treat their servants. In biblical times, people could sell themselves to be servants to pay off debts. You couldn't sell someone else. That was a death penalty sin. But if you were indebted to somebody, you could sell yourself to them for a certain amount of time to work off your debt. And that practice was very common. It's discussed in Leviticus 25 and elsewhere. So for those servants' sake, God gave the Israelites instructions regarding the treatment of servants. The instructions were actually given to the Israelites to protect and help the servants, not harm them or keep them down. Paul summarized the Bible's instructions regarding these servants with these words in Colossians chapter four, verse one. He said, masters, employers, bosses, in other words, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the Bible never encouraged or condoned the horrific kind of slavery that involved kidnapping, selling, and mistreating humans. You won't find it in the Bible. Well, Charlie, the God of the the Bible commanded the Israelites to kill the Canaanites. In the book of Joshua, a loving God would never do that. If someone brings this up with you, and this is a popular objection to the existence of a loving God, as outlined in the Bible, if someone brings up the Canaanites with you, you might ask them this question, have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask them this question. Do you recall what the Canaanites were doing that brought God's judgment on them? I can assure you of this. The answer will almost always be no. So then you might lovingly, humbly bring the person up to speed on what the Canaanites were doing. At the time of Joshua, the Bible tells us that they were an exceedingly wicked people who were sacrificing their children by fire to their God, Molech. They were also, the Bible says, committing incest, adultery, polygamy, bestiality, witchcraft, and a variety of other abominable customs. The Canaanites had become a dangerous, cancerous threat, not only to their posterity and to their neighbors, but to the Israelites. So God determined that the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. And he sent in the Israelite military force to put a stop to the wickedness just as centuries later he would bring in the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to put a stop to the wickedness when the Jewish people began engaging in the exact same kinds of activities. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, God is not one to show partiality. He brought judgment on the Canaanites, he brought judgment on the Israelites, and he very well may bring judgment on our country. He's not one to show partiality. When a country becomes ripe for judgment, judgment falls, according to the sovereign plan of God. He, he can extend mercy as long as he desires, but he will show judgment when he deems it the right thing to do. And friends, as you know, God created the earth and all of its inhabitants, so he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his creation. All life belongs to him. Think back with me to World War II. Most of us believe the Allied powers, which included the USA, had the right and even God's approval to go to war against Japan and Nazi Germany to stop the great evils they were committing. When President Trump came into office in 2017, he authorized our military to wipe out this group. Remember them? ISIS, all the cruel things they were doing. I think most Americans approved of that decision. Well, this raises a question. If human governments have the right to send in a military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. If our non-Christian friends who are critical... of what God did with the Canaanites in the Old Testament, if they were alive at the time of the Canaanites, I think many of them would have been in approval of God's intervention. I do find it a bit odd that atheists today commonly say if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to evil and suffering. Well, in the book of Joshua, we have an example of God putting a stop to some of the evil and our atheist friends say loving God would never do that. I don't know, it seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him find fault. Whether he lets evil run rampant or whether he judges it, they don't, you know, they point fingers like they know better. Like they could run the planet better than God. Well, Charlie, surely God doesn't even exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. People who raised this objection overlooked the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He raised the dead, healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone believe in him? No, they led him away and nailed him to a cross, One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows he's already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him. What evidence, someone might ask here this morning? How about the fine-tuning of the universe? Or the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms or the information we've discovered encoded into DNA? Or hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Or the historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, just for starters. I agree with Norman Geisler, a tremendous Bible scholar who went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. He wrote this. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet, he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or to reject him without violating our freedom. Well, Charlie, you you and I are both atheists. You don't believe in Zeus or Thor, and neither do I. I just take it one deity further. I don't believe in the God of the Bible either In his best-selling book, The God Delusion, the well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins, encourages his readers to use this objection with Christians to actually call them, call you an atheist and, and then to follow it up with this statement. Tell them that you don't believe in Zeus or Thor and neither do I. I just take it one deity further. So Christian, you're actually an atheist. And I've heard that come up in conversations, and I think immediately they read Richard Dawkins' book. That's where they got this. Well, if someone tries this kind of reasoning with you, you might just pull out your phone for them and look up the word atheist in any dictionary app and have your friend read it. An atheist is someone who does not believe in the existence of any god. Christians do believe God exists. So Christians are not atheists in the slightest degree. Now, I understand today why people don't believe in Zeus or Thor. Because there's no evidence. There's no good intellectually satisfying evidence that Zeus or Thor ever existed. But more than 2 billion people alive today believe in the existence of the God of the Bible Why is that? Well, because there's good evidence that the God of the Bible actually exists. Well, Charlie, if the evidence is so compelling, why are there so many atheists? Well, actually, according to a 2021 Pew Research Center survey, atheists make up only 4% of the U.S. population. Most people believe God exists. I agree with the well-known British preacher Charles Spurgeon as to why most people today don't believe God exists. He summarized what's really happening with this quote. He said, I am persuaded that men think there is no God because they wish there were none. They find it hard to believe in God and to go on in sin. So they try to get an easy conscience by denying his existence, end quote. That's often what's going on. They find it hard to believe in God and to continue in their sin. So they try to get an easy conscience by convincing themselves that God isn't there and that there will be no judgment No hell to fear. Well, Charlie, if God exists, why why won't he just heal an amputee by restoring his limb? Then we would all know he exists. I bring up this particular objection in the talk today because this uh, has become popular in the last five years or so, some atheists on the internet decided that this particular miracle would be the miracle that they would accept as sufficient proof for God's existence. And they started up a website. I, I forget the URL. It was like, com or something like that. And atheists would link to it on all their blogs and everything. And they thought this was the big thing. That we're, This would be sufficient proof that God exists. If he would just heal one amputee for us, we would accept that. But since they haven't yet witnessed that, they've again boldly concluded that God surely doesn't exist. Question for you. If people reported that an amputee had his arm miraculously restored, do you think many atheists would admit God exists and begin a relationship with him? I have a hard time envisioning that. Think back to that night when Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he miraculously restored the missing ear of the high priest's servant. Did the people repent and believe in Jesus when they beheld that great miracle? Not at all. In fact, they continued arresting him and then led him away and put him to death on a cross a few hours later. How about the times when Jesus raised dead people back to life? Those were greater miracles than restoring missing limbs. Surely everyone would repent and believe in Jesus after those astounding miracles. No, those who hated Jesus concluded that he accomplished these things with the help of demonic powers, Matthew chapter 12 says. But what if Jesus empowered his followers to work miracles? Maybe people would believe in him then. Well, that's the very thing Jesus did with his first disciples. He sent them out to the world with the power to perform miracles. And the gospels in the book of Acts tell us that God wrought many miracles through them. And what happened? They were subsequently beaten, imprisoned, and put to death by people who did not want to repent. People who want to continue in sin are always able to find an excuse to reject God. So miracles really aren't that effective at changing people's minds or hearts. They rarely produce the kinds of results atheists tell us that they would. Quoting Abraham, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 16, verse 31. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if they reject the written word of God, their minds will not be changed by miraculous acts of God. Well, Charlie, the Bible was written by men. It's not trustworthy. It's almost become humorous to me. Uh, how often this comes up in conversations that people think that they can just point out to you that the Bible was written by men and get the Bible out of the conversation as though we didn't know that. You know, the Bible is written by men. Uh, So, you know, we're, we're not to trust it. Well, when someone tells me that, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion does not follow from their premise. Just because something was written by men doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. If what men write is not trustworthy, we'd have to throw out automobile manuals, encyclopedias, dictionaries, everything the IRS sends us. (laughs) Written by men, toss it up. Can't trust it. Men are capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help, as we know the biblical authors did. Many critics of Christianity today who think the Bible is a compilation of myths and legends overlook the fact that there's a wealth of evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. I have here in mind things like hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, Thousands of archaeological discoveries. The Bible's incredible internal harmony. Historical confirmation that we've now discovered in the ancient writings of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans. Different scientific discoveries that have verified details in the Bible. I did a whole presentation on that here a few years ago. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll talk more about that in our second session here today. Uh, The writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century historian who verifies dozens of details in the New Testament for us. I'm going to be talking about all of these different lines of evidence in our gatherings tomorrow morning at 8.30 and 10.30. Hopefully you'll be able to join us tomorrow morning. We'll do kind of a summary overview of seven different lines of evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. If you're not able to join us tomorrow, or you'd like to uh, do a deeper dive into that subject, I do have some books out at my table that address those evidences as well. But our friend says, Charlie, uh, after the Roman emperor, Constantine became a Christian in AD 312, the Roman Empire took control of the Bible, and tampered with its contents to better control the people. There was a fictional novel that came out in 2003 called The Da Vinci Code. I'm sure some of you remember it. It was a runaway worldwide bestseller. It was turned into a movie with Tom Hanks. Well, the claim there on the screen came from that fictional novel Uh, but there's no evidence to support it. It was something that Dan Brown invented with not a shred of evidence to support it, but a lot of people assumed that the character that said those words in the Da Vinci Code book was speaking about factual events, and it's become part of uh, skeptics' language today to bring up the fact that the Roman Empire tampered with the Bible, Constantine removed books, added books, all of that. Well, they probably read the Da Vinci Code book or picked it up in the movie and don't even remember where they picked it up. So I like to ask them, when someone brings up this Roman Empire tampered with the Bible objection, I like to ask them this question, how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what evidence led you there? Uh, If you'll ask the person that question, I can assure you that 99% of the time you will get a blank stare back because it's not based on careful research or verifiable evidence. They can't even remember that they picked it up in the Da Vinci Code. So they're often, oftentimes they're just gonna look back at you kind of blankly like, I don't even know where I figured that out. <laughs> well, there's no evidence to support it. They can't give you any evidence. And the ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible that predate the time of Constantine prove this to be the case. What do I mean? Well, we know what the Bible said before Constantine was even born around AD 280. And when we compare the Bible we have and use today to those ancient manuscript copies of the Bible, we see that it says the same thing. It said all the way back in the first, second and third centuries. I'll talk a little bit more about that this uh, tomorrow morning as well. Moving along, another objection I've been hearing more lately has to do with the enormity of the universe. Atheists are saying that the universe is so vast, it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, it's absurd to think that God would create all these other galaxies and planets if the focus of his love was really just right here on our planet. Well, in response to that, I would first note that the enormity of something has absolutely no bearing on whether or not God exists. For God could have several good reasons for creating the universe the way he did, including the knowledge that his creatures would find a sky full of stars quite beautiful. That could be sufficient reason in itself. God just thought, you know what? I want my people to look up at night and be blown away. So I'm just going to make billions of stars. Lots of galaxies. You know, I can just hear atheists complaining today if God had made just a boring universe with no stars, or like, like two or three, and then our earth, I can hear them complaining and saying, well, if God's so powerful and such an amazing creator, why didn't he create billions of stars and lots of galaxies? You know, to prove that he was amazing. Again, no matter what God does, people can find fault, right? Right? Well, in reality, I think the enormity of the universe with all of its galaxies and stars actually proves to be more of a problem for atheists. Why is that? Well, the world's leading atheistic authors and philosophers believe every star, planet, and galaxy in the cosmos sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking said was literally nothing. Friend, that requires an enormous amount of faith, For we know that nothing cannot do something, let alone turn itself into billions of stars and planets. Well, Charlie, it's a fact that humans are the product of evolution. Well, this is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the theory of human evolution. I can't get into all of them Uh, This morning, but one fatal blow to the theory of evolution is the fossil record. The fossil record, if evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layers. But it doesn't. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously, fully developed, and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. Those facts are devastating to the theory of human evolution. The fossil evidence is actually evidence for a global flood, as recorded in the book of Genesis, not evolution and the so-called ape men fossils that scientists keep trying to sell off to the public as proof of human evolution again and again turn out to be an embarrassment to evolutionists consider piltdown men In the village of Piltdown, England, an amateur paleontologist found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth. Scientists hailed the discovery as a missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. For 40 years, it was taught in schools as proof of human evolution. 40 years in the textbooks. Until... It was finally exposed as a colossal hoax. Forty years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the piltdown skull belonged to a modern human and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. Piltdown man was a total forgery. Sorry kids, 40 years in the textbooks. But what about Neanderthal man? You probably grew up learning about him. School children again were taught for decades that Neanderthal man was proof of human evolution. But, now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans, not ape men or ancestors of modern humans, just humans. Uh, how about Nebraska men? Nebraska man, as depicted in this artistic propaganda, was based on a discovery of a single tooth in a field in the state of Nebraska. Pretty amazing what they can draw up for the scientific magazines, the textbooks, and uh, the museum exhibits, isn't it? Off one tooth. I'd walk by that museum exhibit and think they must have found the whole village. <laughs> All kinds of bones and tools, forts. No, just, just one tooth. At the Nebraska Man exhibit, there's the, the artwork they commonly displayed. Uh, they sold this off to the public again as proof of human evolution until years later when it was proved by other scientists to be the tooth of a pig. What about Lucy? Unearthed in Ethiopia, a collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity in newspapers, textbooks, on television shows, and in museums. But evolutionary researchers have more recently concluded that she should no longer be considered a direct ancestor of humans. Still waiting for some of those museums to pull down the exhibits, though. They leave those up for years after it's hit the news, even. It's ridiculous. Uh, how about one more, Ida? sure you heard about Ida. Back in 2009, the press hailed the fossilized remains named Ida as the missing link in human evolution and the eighth wonder of the world. I thought, oh boy, here we go again. But Ida was more recently and quietly reclassified as a small-tailed extinct primate and ancestor, not of humans at all, but just lemurs oops friends the fossil record has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of human evolution and we know why humans are not the product of millions of years of mutations and evolution we were created by God your human body with its 206 bones More than 600 muscles and a heart that beats more than 100,000 times a day is it pumps about 75 gallons of blood an hour through more than 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in your body shouts design from top to bottom. Friend, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator. Praise the Lord for that. Well... Charlie, the New Testament authors stole the whole idea for Jesus' virgin birth and resurrection from ancient religions that were around prior to Christianity. There's a popular video that's been circulating now for several years on the internet called Zeitgeist. I'm sure some of you have seen it. It went viral, it still is circulating out there. It's been translated into dozens of different languages. This low budget video produced by one person, a man who was raised in a Christian home and who departed from the faith named Peter Joseph has destroyed the faith, I'd say, of thousands of young people. Our ministry has gotten emails from parents telling us that their teenager watched this 30-minute Zeitgeist segment and walked away from the Lord, hasn't come back to church since. I've heard that from dozens of parents. It, it really is a satanic masterpiece. I do not encourage you to watch it, but know this, it is wrecking havoc out there on the internet. The video alleges that the New Testament authors plagiarized major details for Jesus' life from earlier sources, other religions that were around before the rise of Christianity. For example, the Zeitgeist video says the gospel writers stole the idea for a virgin giving birth to a child from the ancient religion of Mithraism. And your average 15-year-old or, you know, teenager that watches this video, they've never even heard of Mithraism, and they hear this Peter Joseph guy with this authoritative, you know, National Geographic narrator kind of voice say this, and he sounds intelligent. They they, they think, oh my goodness, I I never realized that. That, that, you know, Jesus' life story was plagiarized from this Mithras deity in, in the religion of Mithraism. And they don't even know where to go to, to fact check any of that. And they think that it's true. And how ignorant my parents must be for not knowing this. Well, I happen to know about Mithraism. I've taught college level courses on world religions. I've investigated the ancient Persian religion of Mithraism. So when I watch the video, I I see the problems with it and can spot the lies, but your average, a lot of people aren't able to do that. But the myths related to the ancient religion of Mithraism say that its deity by the name of Mithras arose spontaneously from a rock inside a cave. Does that sound like a virgin birth to you? Not at all. But a lot of people aren't able to, they don't even know where to go to fact check that. To suggest that the gospel writers stole the idea for the virgin birth, for Mithraism, it's preposterous. But Peter Joseph knew that he could get away with that in this video and that many people wouldn't even, you know, know where he was lying. The virgin birth of, of the Messiah was not plagiarized for Mithraism. It was actually the fulfillment of a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14, six or 700 years before Jesus' birth. And many Bible commentators believe the virgin birth of the Messiah was prophesied as far back as Genesis 3, where God seems to indicate that the coming Messiah would be born to a woman apart from a relationship with a man. But what about Jesus' resurrection? Did the New Testament authors steal the idea for Jesus' resurrection? also, as the Zeitgeist video says? Well, again, the answer is no. Jesus' resurrection wasn't borrowed from some ancient religion. Again, it was the fulfillment of prophecies made by Hebrew prophets as far back as 1,000 years before Jesus' birth. David, writing around 1000 BC, and the prophet Isaiah, prophesying around 700 BC, both foretold the coming Messiah's resurrection. They prophesied it would happen long before Jesus was even born. So you can be confident that the New Testament writers did not plagiarize details for Jesus' life story from these ancient religions. Now, the Zeitgeist video has all kinds of other things to say that I don't have time to get into in this talk. If you'd like to explore a more in-depth response to that video, you can go to our website at alwaysbeready.com. We've got an uh, alphabetical menu on our homepage. You can go down to the bottom, down to the Zs, and click on Zeitgeist, and you'll see a point-by-point Uh, response to several of the claims made in that video. Again, the website is alwaysbeready.com. All right, moving along. Let's consider another objection that we're hearing more today. This one concerns the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Critics of Christianity point out that Jesus said to love people, even your enemies in Matthew chapter five. So Christian's rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. Well, I think it's important to point out to people that we certainly do not hate people who identify as a homosexual or a lesbian. Many of us have a family member or a coworker or a good friend, you know, who identifies as such. Um, The Christian's view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood that, to mean that Christians reject or hate the people engaging in that behavior. My wife and I have five kids and occasionally they engage in some sort of behavior or activity that I have to call them out on and say, what you're doing is sinful, okay? It's, it's, it's not pleasing to the Lord, okay? Question for you, does that mean I hate my kids? Of course not, I actually tell them that because I love them and I wanna see them live a life that God can bless and that will be a blessing to others. So disagreeing with my kids over an activity or calling it out does not mean I hate them and it's the same with our homosexual and lesbian friends. Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. People in our culture today want you to think that it does so that if you don't applaud anything that anybody wants to do, you're a bigot. You're hateful. They've got all the labels and names to call us to try to coerce us into applauding whatever anybody wants to do. Well, we can't. When it comes to adultery, we can't applaud that. When it comes to fornication, we don't applaud that. When it comes to same gender sexual activity, we don't applaud that. God has set the parameters for human sexuality, and he knows what he's doing. All of those boundaries and guidelines regarding human sexuality are are there intentionally to lead us into a blessing, lead us into the, the kind of life that will glorify him and that he can bless. So we distinguish between the person. And the practice. It's only same gender sexual activity we're opposed to. Not the persons engaging in that activity. We can still love the person, but we can't applaud the activity. Well, Charlie, the Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. If someone tells you that, you might ask them this question. Have you studied the Bible? Now watch your tone. Okay, I'm not encouraging you to be snarky here. (laughs) Have you read the Bible? No, just in love, in humility, have you studied the Bible? If the person says, yes, I have studied the Bible, you might follow up with this question. What passages did you find most oppressive? Tell me about them and see what the person has to say. I've been reading and studying the Bible for more than 30 years. And I've come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. Husbands, that's a good place to say amen, right there. Amen. (laughs) But who cares what I think? Millions of women who read the Bible on a daily basis have also come to that same conclusion that God loves and cherishes women. They've understood that the Bible says men and women are both made in the image of God and are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives, even as Jesus loves them and was willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider one another, which would include women, to be more important than themselves. They've read about the friendships Jesus had with people like Mary and Martha and how he healed several women. They've read about women like Ruth, Deborah, Priscilla, and others who are portrayed in the Bible in a wonderful light. And they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife, and rape. Friends, if people would follow Jesus' teachings more closely, the world would be a much better place today for women. Uh, You can be sure of that. Well, our atheist friend says that religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. Unfortunately, religious terrorists, greedy televangelists, child molesting priests, and others have done things that are terribly hurtful to people. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this objection. First, Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit. The evil things that people do go against Jesus's instructions, Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others the way we would like to be loved and treated. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, he said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. In other words, if you want people to be friendly and kind and forgiving with you, Jesus would say, well, you be friendly and kind and forgiving with them. This is known as the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Imagine how much better off the world would be today if more people did this. So while religious people have certainly caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus' feet. A second thing commonly overlooked when people blame the world's suffering on religious people is this, atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Richard Dawkins doesn't point that out in his books. He'll point out what so-called Christians have done. Uh, But how about Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong Those three men and their followers murdered as many as 100 million people in just a few decades of the 20th century. That's far more than those who were put to death by theists of any stripe over the past five centuries. So it just isn't true that religions are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering, especially Christianity. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider one last objection, then we'll give you a break. If you're out sharing the gospel with people, it's not uncommon to hear someone or have someone come up to your group and say, you know, you really should stop trying to force your beliefs on people. Well, in response to that, I think it's probably pretty rare that Christians are out there actually trying to force people. Uh, to listen to them, or to convert. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave three days later, he told his followers to share the good news with the whole world. So that's really all we're trying to do. We're not trying to force people to believe. We're simply explaining God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life to people. We believe that it's news that's too good to keep to ourselves, If someone had the cure for a deadly disease and kept it to himself, people would consider it a crime. Well, the good news about Jesus is better than the cure for the deadliest disease. That's why Christians are trying to get the gospel out. Because of Jesus' death in your place... For your sins, God is now offering forgiveness of all your sins and everlasting life as a free gift to any and all who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. What a gracious offer God has made the world. How do you receive that gift? Jesus said, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. God did all the work. He just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus. And I know that most of you here today have. I think it's probably safe to assume there's one or two of you here today who maybe you were invited by a friend. You wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. I want to encourage you, today's the day. There's no guarantee that you'll have another chance past today. Your life could come to a screeching halt sooner than you're anticipating and you want to make sure when you stand before your maker that your sins have been forgiven and the good news is they can be forgiven. They can be washed away today. God is a prayer away. You can call it to him this morning before you leave this place and just pray something like, God, thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I renounce them and turn away from them. And I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. Get right with God today. He loves you. It's not an accident that you're here today. He's drawing you to to himself. He wants to have a relationship with you in this life and through eternity. So call out to him. Well, we covered a lot there. That was a 55-minute whirlwind of several objections and questions. If you'd like to go back over anything I shared with you today, most of what I shared with you in this first session is pulled out of one of my books. It's called One Minute Answers to skeptics we've recently updated that i brought some copies of that with me Uh, we're going to give you about a 30 minute uh break before the second session there's refreshments and coffee out there uh in the hall it looks like i'll be at my book table to chat with you answer questions that kind of a thing you guys can enjoy some fellowship and um We'll call you back in when it's time for the second session. And in that session, we're going to be talking about the archaeological evidence for the Bible. Amen? Amen. Enjoy your time. And uh, we'll see you back here in about 30 minutes.